From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Facebook made waves when it unveiled plans for its own cryptocurrency, Libra. Unlike most cryptocurrencies, Libra will be backed by fiat money held in regulated financial institutions. The news has already attracted a lot of attention and skepticism from regulators. Congresswoman Maxine Waters, the chairwoman of the House Financial Services Committee, already scheduled hearings in mid-July to examine Libra and even told Facebook to stop development of the project until big questions are answered. The Senate is expected to hold their own set of hearings as well, while Fed Chair Jay Powell said that the U.S. Central Bank will be looking at the proposed cryptocurrency very closely. We will wind up having quite high expectations from a sort of safety and soundness and regulatory standpoint if they do decide to go forward with something. I spoke to Facebook's head of Calibra, David Marcus, about his plan to bring in regulators and promote transparency. I started by asking him about the decision to make the token on a blockchain and why he thought it was the best database structure for the currency. Well, it's the best database structure because if you want decentralized governance over something that should be governed as a public good, this is the best way to achieve this. Uh, and so we went the blockchain route because we will have, by the time we launch, a hundred different global organizations that will participate in the governance of this new network uh, uh, and currency. Twenty-seven uh, organizations right now, uh, and so we needed we needed a way to decentralize governance because no one company should control a network uh, that basically is a protocol for value on the internet. Let's talk about some of those launch partners. One thing that people notice immediately is there's no other major tech companies and there's no traditional existing uh, banks as we know them. Were they approached or was there any particular reason for their absence? Well, I mean, I know you want to talk about all the companies that are <laughs> not here, but you know, I think we can take a moment and you know sure. recognize the uh, the remarkable organizations that uh, are already joining us. Uh, and you know, just just you know, to to reestablish this, this is very early. Uh, Twenty-seven organizations right now, a hundred by the time uh, we launch, uh, and you know, by that time, uh, I definitely expect to see banks in there. I definitely expect to see other. 
uh, large technology companies. And I definitely expect to see more diversity of organizations right. in terms of geographical distribution uh, and, and the likes. So, you know, there's so much work ahead. Let's talk about the structure of how the currency is used specifically. If I were to acquire mm-hmm. Libra on an exchange, am I able to move those coins to a wallet of my own holding with my own keys like I'm able to do with, say, a currency like Bitcoin? Yes. So while we are starting with a permission blockchain on the nodes side of the house, the blockchain will be open, meaning that people and companies can build services on top of the blockchain. You don't need to be a member of the association to build a wallet on top of uh, this new network. And as a result, we will have a lot of competition for our own wallets. But the wallet can be offline. And so it could be something in which I can hold my keys and the coins on a computer or a USB drive or a laptop that's disconnected from the network and nobody needs to know that I have it anywhere? Yes. And then would I be able to transfer those coins to a third party? Would I be able to send you those coins via the blockchain in a way that no entity, whether it's Facebook or any of the, uh, you know, the launching partners would know about? Are we able to transact in a way that no third party is able to see it? Well, I mean, third party would be able to see it because nodes will validate sure. transactions. And even if you transact on your own on the blockchain, you know, the same way that other blockchains right. function, uh, you know, third parties, you know, but no one specific party can actually see transactions. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, the, the one thing that I want to say, though, is despite the fact that non-custodial wallets where you can manage your own private yeah. key and, and, and move money around will exist, uh, the on and off ramps are going to be regulated. The custodial wallets are going to be regulated. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't enable a, a form of digital cash uh, right. transactions to happen on top of this new network. Right. So the existence of a digital cash, for obvious reasons, creates all kinds of regulatory issues because, in theory, if I'm able to transact in, with someone in a permissionless way, then we could be doing something illegal, whether it's evading capital controls, buying drugs, whatever it is. So how do you enable that kind of free exchange while also dealing with the uh, regulatory bodies that are going to be exist in uh, scrutinizing this uh, project all over the world? It's a great question, and I'm I'm glad you asked it. Uh, So a couple of things. First of all, uh, we've decided not to enable crypto primitives on this blockchain that would enable what we call shielded transactions. So meaning that, you know, if you're a criminal and you want to transact on a network, this is not going to be your network of choice uh, because accounts are are pseudonymous. They're not anonymous or shielded. And as a result, law enforcement can actually do their thing the same way they're doing it with Bitcoin or Ethereum really well. Now, the one thing I would say is that the the current effectiveness of anti-money laundering uh, is, you know, catching about, you know, low single digit percentage of, you know, money laundering happening in the world. And the reason for that is that the vast majority of money laundering is actually happening in the cash system. Right. And enabling, enabling many people to join a digital network with digital money uh, with regulated on and off ramps. So meaning that even if you want to convert fiat 
money into Libra, you'll have to right. go through regulated entities if you're moving large sums of money. And on top of that, no shielded transactions enabling regulators to actually uh, observe themselves what's going on on the network rather than only relying on uh, institutions to report transactions, I think will only improve the effectiveness of money laundering. And that's definitely been done uh, with, with this in mind. So I think that you can have the best of both worlds, enabling people to use digital cash uh, and be their own custodian, uh, and at the same mm. time, uh, not only meet the regulatory requirements, but improve on the effectiveness of money laundering programs and others. Now, it seems to me that the regulatory thicket you're going to face is just mind-boggling uh, dealing in countries all over the world, in the U.S., each state obviously has its own banking regulations, money transmission regulations. What is the plan to create a unified system that satisfies regulators literally all over the world? Well, I mean, so you, you have to understand that there are two layers to this. So one is the network that is governed by this non-for-profit association that will be based in Switzerland, right. uh, the Libra Association. Now, the Libra Association will not touch consumers. Uh, so mm. as a result, the entities that uh, are going to interface uh, with regulators uh, are mostly going to be the custodial wallets and the regulated entities that you know, will play a part in this ecosystem. Uh, now, on, on the side of the Libra Association, I think that you know, good conversations are uh, required, uh, notably around transparency, accountability, right. and management of the reserve, because the reserve is a very important component of the stability of uh, this new digital currency. And, I, and, and we welcome uh, open conversations with uh, regulators to figure out how to uh, drive accountability and transparency for uh, the Libra Association, uh, notably on the Reserve. In the documentation, you talk about how eventually you aspire for the Libra blockchain to become permissionless, and it's not truly there at its launch date. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to achieve permissionlessness in your view, and how, did, again, does one reconcile that with the fact that you're going to have to deal with regulated entities as long as it's fiat-backed? Yeah, I don't think those two things uh, are necessarily correlated. You know, when I think about uh, a permissionless chain, the advantage of a permissionless chain where nodes are more fungible right. uh, is that the network can actually survive for much longer periods of time. And, you know, you know my hope is that the Libra network is around hundreds of years from now. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a result, you know, thinking that, you know, static group of organizations are still going to be around managing this network 500 years from now uh, is probably not a good idea. Right. So, you know, the, uh, having market dynamics uh, get new nodes into the system uh, and replace uh, older nodes uh, and create a, more competition for nodes is actually going to benefit consumers and ensure that this network is going to be around hundreds of years from now. So I think it's a very important transition uh, and one that will also reflect uh, the impact of the different parties on the ecosystem, because it, you know, if we end up in a, in a proof of stake uh, 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 mode of, uh, of right. consensus algorithm, uh, basically the entities that will have invested the most, that will have uh, the, 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 the most impact on this ecosystem, uh, will have uh, an equivalent governance. I want to ask you final question. Obviously, in your, the, the launch of the website and the documentation, in the rhetoric, lots of focus 
on serving the underbanked. And a lot of people, frankly, in crypto have been Mm -hmm. talking about this opportunity for a long time. How will the underbanked actually acquire and get onto the network? Because obviously, if you're here in the U.S., it's easy to go on a website and you know, transfer your money and make a purchase. If you live in a cash economy or primarily cash economy or don't have access to existing financial system, mm-hmm. what is the on-ramp to Libra that you envision? Well, it'll have to be cash in and cash out at a local physical uh, place. Okay. Uh, and, you know, again, that's going to be a game of all the different wallets uh, competing in different regions. The beauty, though, is that all the wallets will be interoperable. So, you know, Calibra might be the best wallet for a certain region. Other wallets will be a better wallet for other regions. But uh, consumers from one wallet will be able to transact with consumers from another wallet because they will live on top of the Libra blockchain. And as a result, you know, we believe that the ecosystem that can be built around uh, this new network can be really powerful in, in driving more financial inclusion. The, the one thing I'd say is that when you think about the potential of having a network that reaches billions of people where moving money around is very low cost or free in certain cases compared to the current average cost of 7% and days to clear a transaction, sometimes people have to wait hours in line and get mugged and all these Things. You know, I think that when you think about the evolution of money for so many people around the world, it's such an opportunity that, uh, that I think, you know, it was a, a journey worth, uh, worth taking. Then I spoke with one of those lawmakers on Capitol Hill who is skeptical of Facebook's plans to launch Libra, Republican Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana. But first, we talked about President Trump's renewed attacks on Chair Powell this week. President Trump suggested a central banker swap saying he would rather have European Central Bank President Mario Draghi at the Fed. I asked Senator Kennedy, who is a member of the Banking Committee, whether the president has the power to remove the Fed chairman. I don't know the answer to that because I haven't researched it, but here's my impression that the uh, the Federal Reserve is and should be an independent agency. This is America. Everybody's entitled to his opinion, opinion. I think Jay Powell's doing a good job. I think, uh, I think he calls it like he sees it. Um, the economy in America is doing extraordinarily well. I don't think he's so worried about that as, as, as much as he is the, wor- the rest of the world's economy. Europe is, in, is, is about to go into a recession. Uh, things are not going well in China. Um, uh, you know, it's a tough job, and I think it's very, very important that um, Powell and the Fed be allowed to do its job. Now, does the president have a right to complain? Sure he does. Every president that I can remember has always offered his opinion to the Fed about the Fed. Uh, But but in the final analysis, it's the Fed's call. And one of the reasons that billions of dollars every year flow into America to be invested here is because people don't believe that the Federal Reserve is a political body, and it is not. And if you start, if you right. allow it to become political, ask President Erdogan in, <laughs> uh, in, in Turkey what happens when you uh, appoint your son-in-law head of the Federal Reserve. I mean, their currency tanked. Right. Well, let's uh, turn it to a topic uh, over which the president probably does have more control right now, and that is the trade talk. So 
Are you optimistic uh, heading into the G20 this weekend that the current path of negotiations with uh, China is on track to get something done? And how worried would you be about the economy if nothing gets done and the full set of tariffs go into place? I think eventually we will work out an agreement with China. I'm not sure that China will abide by that agreement. That's been part of the problem. Uh, We admitted China, China was admitted, with our support to the World Trade Organization, which has a set of rules, on December 11, 2001. On December 12, China started cheating. And they've been cheating every day ever since. And America has never stood up to them. We've, We've always been told, be patient, be patient. China is a developing country. They'll come around. Well, no, they're not developing. They're developed. And they haven't come around. They've gotten worse. And that's what this trade fight is all about. I think the president knows that the only way to win a trade war is don't fight it. But uh, we don't want to be enemies with China. But China's, we want to be friendly competitors. But they've got to play by the same rules the rest of the world does. When are we going to work it out? I don't know. I mean, I... I'm hopeful that the summit is going to help get things back on the right track. And yeah, tariffs are painful. They're painful to us. They're painful to China. But all China's got to do is say, hey, we get it. We're going to abide by the same set of rules that the rest of the world abides by. Do you think that Congress should uh, take back some authority over trade or perhaps change the law limiting the president's ability to, say, unilaterally or easily decide that uh, something is a national security threat, even when that is perhaps in dispute? I think Congress should have more say in trade, not just in trade, but a lot of things. Our founders were very smart people. They they set up three co-equal branches of government. And uh, ever since then, for whatever reason, members of Congress have given away a lot of their power to to the president, to the bureaucracy, uh, to the courts. Uh, I I think having that check and balance is is healthy. I think uh, Congress should have more to say in terms of trade. That doesn't mean that the president shouldn't have anything to say, but there has to be a right balance. And I think the balance right now is off. Uh, Real quickly, last question. The uh, banking committee, which you sit on, has scheduled hearings Mm -hmm. for Facebook's uh, cryptocurrency. And I'm curious whether you uh, are concerned about that, an extraordinary large and powerful tech company issuing its own uh, sort of supranational currency and what kind of questions you might have for them. I've read Facebook's proposal. It kind of boils down to this. We're going to turn over the world's money supply to Mark Zuckerberg. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the hearings. I, I, need to hear, I need to hear more about this idea. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of visit bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more 
Then we spoke with Skanda Amarnath, the Director of Research and Analysis at Employ America, about why he thinks the Federal Reserve can learn a lot from Canada. So there is this idea, especially in the U.S., that once you get to a certain level of unemployment, we're supposed to get that sort of Phillips curve moment when price pressures, whether it's in consumer price inflation or wage growth, is supposed to accelerate. And in the U.S., we've seen some mild wage acceleration, but we really haven't seen much evidence of mm -hmm. uh, price acceleration. And one of the counter arguments is we're not measuring the unemployment rate correctly. There are better measures of the unemployment rate, things like the prime age employment rate. While that's a better measure, I agree with that. If you look to the north in Canada, Canada is at a historic low on the unemployment rate. Mm -hmm. It's at a historic high on the prime age employment rate. It's been at that historic high since about the middle of 2017. Nevertheless, you haven't seen acceleration in both prices or wages, really. So we have the chart here, and we, in the gold we have Canada. And you can see that the employment to population ratio uh, for prime age workers, all time high. So in other words, the history of Canada's measure by the most straightforward measure, the labor market has never been this tight. Agreed. And yet there, and yet what you're pointing out is, even there, we haven't seen a real kick up in inflation. Yes, and if this was supposed to be a useful model for understanding inflation dynamics, I would think by now in Canada, we would have seen the kind of acceleration in wages and prices that validate that sort of framing of how labor markets interact with inflation. But in reality, there's not been a sort of hard destination limit on how far the labor market could tighten or labor utilization could simply increase in Canada. So when we look at the US and we say, okay, maybe it's not the unemployment rate here, maybe it's a different measure that needs to get to this point and then we'll get the inflation, I don't think that's a useful way of thinking about inflation dynamics. At least Canada is showing that that's proving to be a weaker case, that there's some magic level where all of a sudden the inflation erupts. So in comes the prime age employment to population ratio, which we say is a better measure mm -hmm. to measure sort of unemployment and where the economy is. And what I liked about your piece is you made the case that it's a better function now than it was in the past, particularly mm -hmm. because of the rise of female employment, right? Yes. So walk me through why that's a better measure. So the key reason why it's a better measure is that if you actually go through the household survey, which is what we use for the unemployment rate itself, uh, it's not actually very good at identifying who is unemployed and who is not participating in the labor market. And that's a pretty key distinction to make if you're trying to measure the unemployment rate correctly. Uh, there are people who respond, I'm unemployed one month, and then they, the next month they say, I'm not participating. And they go back and forth between the two in a very inconsistent manner, um, especially when asked how long were you unemployed. Um, these inconsistencies suggest that we really shouldn't be levering ourselves too heavily to like that definition and distinction. We would, better, we would be better off separating it into the employed and the non-employed than trying to fine tune who's participating, who's not, which is just harder. Now, one thing in your piece, there is some good news for economists who are trying to find some relationship between the labor market and inflation, and you point this out, and that perhaps the key is to not look at some level like, oh, below 4% or at full employment, but to look at the pace of job gains at any given moment in time. And as you point out, maybe that could signal, give offer some signal of when inflationary pressures might build. Yes, so I don't want to oversell this at this stage because I think the analysis is pretty preliminary, but we do see when the unemployment rate rises, we do see generally inflation tends to follow with some 12 to 18 month lag uh, to the downside. 
but it actually looks more correlated to growth. And here we have that chart. Yes, so if we actually look at the unemployment rate and core services CPI, which captures a lot of the cyclical elements of inflation, not entirely, but it's pretty good, it's some, in some local periods uh, correlated. Correlated-ish. Ish, exactly, right? I can, if I stare closely, I can find something, but it's not actually um, that correlated overall. If you try to get a slightly more stable relationship, I think the change in uh, utilization or employment growth actually seems to be a better guide. And the upshot of that, if that's right, is we should be thinking a little bit more about speed limits in terms of where labor utilization can go, and not so much about a hard destination limit or some ceiling on how far we can tighten, which could be pretty cool if it was true. And finally, we wrap things up with Bernie Sanders' plan to wipe out $1.6 trillion worth of student debt. The Democratic presidential hopeful rolled out his proposal this week, saying it would provide relief for some 45 million Americans and would be financed by a tax on Wall Street transactions. The American people bailed out Wall Street. Now it is time for Wall Street to come to the aid of the middle class of this country. This Wall Street tax will have the added benefit of controlling Wall Street recklessness and reducing the likelihood of another major economic crash. Wall Street is already balking at the plan, saying Senator Sanders' proposal could cause even more pain. To break down the economics of the issue and the policy proposal, we spoke with Josh Bivens, the Director of Research and Policy at the Economic Policy Institute. We started by asking Josh if this sort of proposed tax could raise enough money to pay off all of the outstanding student loan debt in the United States. I think it would come pretty close. I mean, we, we haven't had a financial transactions tax this large at any point in our history. We've had a much smaller one on stock trades. So we can't say for certainty how much revenue it's gonna raise. I would say this is one of the rare taxes where even if it fails to raise revenue, that actually means it's working in one of its goals. One of the goals of a financial transactions tax is to squeeze out sort of socially useless transactions, just those zero-sum bets that are made on Wall Street, if those go away and taxes aren't collected, that just means lower fees for investors. So this is one case where even if the revenue doesn't come in exactly to the dollar to finance what is wanted, it's still doing a very useful thing. How do you feel confident that there would be no uh, broader negative ramifications from wiping out a significant a significant volume of trading? Because obviously it's tempting. You look at a lot of derivatives trading, pure speculation, say, OK, it's kind of socially useless. It wouldn't be the end of the world if that became uneconomical. But a lot of it ultimately may support, you know, whatever large pension funds or insurance companies that feel they need to hedge for one reason or another. So is there any reason in your view to be nervous that perhaps throwing some uh, sand into the gears of the financial system might have uh, dire consequences? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident it won't have dire consequences. I mean, I think that confidence grows out of a couple things. I mean, one, we used to have a lot more sand in the gears of finance, hmm. sort of in the 30-year period after World War II, where the financial sector as a share of the overall economy was about a third the size of it is today. Yet, rates of actual tangible investment for non-financial businesses were higher. Since we sort of unleashed finance with the big deregulatory wave in the 1980s, you see finance's share of the economy has really skyrocketed, and yet we've not seen any dividend at all in sort of faster investment. And then there's actually evidence looking across countries about the size of the financial sector and economic growth. And you want to have a functioning financial sector. You want to have the ability to do intermediation. But over a certain point, it's been shown that a larger financial 
financial sector actually restrains growth. And the U.S. is well over that tipping point. So, you know, any tax you want to monitor, you want to make sure it's not having wrong consequences. Going into this one, I'm pretty confident that this is either going to raise money or squeeze out largely socially unuseful transactions. Okay, Josh, so clearly you're a supporter of potentially financial transaction taxes. What about what it goes to fund? And of course, I mean, it's eye-popping the, the trillions of dollars in student debt that there is in the United States. But the way in which Bernie Sanders wants to call them all off and therefore also look to fund free tuition going forward, how realistic a prospect is that? And how much does it help or indeed hinder going forward maybe some of the quality of the tuition and indeed those that perhaps don't need help actually paying off their loans as they speak because they're making decent wages. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I would separate the, so aside from the tax portion of his plan, there's sort of two aspects. There's the going forward, let's make public education far more affordable, mm -hmm. free in his plan. I think there are strong economic arguments that that is just a net good for society at large. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you believe in the value of a college education, that it has positive spillover effects, we want to make that as broadly affordable as possible. So to my mind, I, that's, that's a strong win for his plan. I think the most controversial aspect is the canceling of student debt, sort of the backward-looking part of this. And I would have to say, I, I think I am largely in agreement that we should do a pretty large-scale cancellation of that debt. I think a lot of it was premised on just really big policy mistakes, where we told people, there's a college wage premium. You will absolutely get it if you go to college, no questions asked. It is always growing, so it's a great investment to go to college. But all we're going to do to make college more accessible is not finance it publicly, not expand access, just allow people, liberalize the rules to let people take on more debt. And I think what we got, when you look over those past 20 years, lots of people took on debt and didn't finish college. Lots of people took on debt and didn't get that college wage premium. They actually did not see a huge wage boost. And so I think the cancellation of debt is in part an acknowledgment that we had this failed policy experiment. That said, you know, I, I think income caps make sense. I think for some people, taking on a lot of debt led to pretty good incomes. And I think that, you know, fiscal resources are scarce. I maybe wouldn't go that far. But I do think a large-scale cancellation and acknowledgment that we did this very flawed and failed policy experiment, that to me seems in order. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.